Welcome to the Survivors to Thrivers podcast. I am your host, Joshua Blattman. This series is a safe space to explore the gaps between science and what's yet unknown. We share stories of struggle, journeys of healing, tools for triumph, and explore the ingredients of transformation. Today, my guest is Carrie Jarda. Carrie specializes in creating simple tools that enable people to take charge of their experience and thrive in the midst of normal and extraordinary situations. For more information about Carrie, check out her site, Elemental Communication, at elemental-comm.com. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Joshua. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, there are a number of current events happening, and I just want to acknowledge those as we are talking about new and unique healing technologies um, and trauma, essentially. Um, there's a global pandemic, as well as those peaceful protests and riots all over the country and really all over the world in response yeah. to systemic problems like killing and the killing of George Floyd and others. Um, and in the face of all this trauma, I want to focus on unique techniques and technologies to help us heal, mm. which is a segue into what you do. And yes. I really want to explore that. Um, do you want to take it from there or do you want me to ask a, a specific question? Go ahead and ask, ask a, a specific question and then okay. we can take it there because that's a huge topic that you've just opened up. Topic. And I'd love yeah. to hear more about what's important to you to hear. Um, well, I'm really interested in emotional balance, self-sabotage, um, how we get in conflict with ourselves and how um, on a broader, more symbolic stage, how our internal world is a mirror for the external world and vice versa. <laughs> um, but let's start with emotional balance and self-sabotage um, and go from there. Ah, I love that you're starting there because right now in the midst of not only a pandemic, but really what's shaping up to be a civil war, our emotions are just running all over the place, you know? And I think most people are kind of feeling like they're a two-year-old inside. Like I know, I know I am my emotional like reservoir of, you know, the healthy emotions that I usually think that I can have enough of and reach into, those tanks are pretty much empty right now. But what I am full of is grief and anger and upset and frustration. And so it's like, what do we do with all those in the midst of trying times and not make everything worse? Mm -hmm. And And one of the most important technologies that I've been working with with my clients and my students is first of all, just to tell the truth about what you're feeling, mm -hmm. right? That is surprisingly, if you do like a heart rate monitor where they look at heart rate variability, mm -hmm. telling the truth about how you feel immediately starts to just soothe the body and let things settle down. It, it restores you. So the best thing for me to tell people is when you're in, when you're in these really crazy times, tell the truth about what's going on. You don't have to go into positive 
emotions and stay positive that actually makes the stress harder you know mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um like oh it's all gonna work out it's all gonna be fine and and then they throw pepper grass, and then they and then they spray pepper or throw pepper spray out into the crowds again or yeah. or you get another like visual pop of like ah that oh get out of my brain um, yeah yeah because the thing is in in all fairness yes things will probably work out better at the end but that could be 10 years from now we don't know what the escalation is going to be of either the coronavirus or what's going on inside of our country and inside of the world. And, and again, it's so, it's so interesting how just being able to say, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know when I'm going to know how I feel about it. That gives us space to be with what's going on inside of us. And that's, that's where I like to go first with people and, and remember to do that with myself is I have to check inside and give myself permission to like not even have answers or opinions right now. Mm -hmm. Like what if I didn't have to take sides? And maybe even what if I didn't feel like I was being pushed into a side by whatever social pressures there are that are expecting that you yeah. pick a side. Exactly. Oh. I know, right? You just took a nice breath there. It's well, like, like I had a whole like, emotional thing as you're talking about, as you're talking about not having to pick sides. I'm like, I felt this like, like um, a body sensation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are part of it, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, how do we read our own body sensations? <laughs> Or even to be present with them because this is like this is a big thing. This is yeah. elementary emotional regulation to some extent, but this is also like ninja level stuff, also to a certain extent. It is. It is. It's um I'm an engineer, and so I really like good technology that's reliable and repeatable and works and does what we want it to do. And so I I go back into what are the little bite-sized brownies that we can use to help ourselves know what we're feeling and just be with that feeling without having to create all these stories around it? Because our, our conscious mind, God bless it, it wants things to make sense. And our emotions don't make sense. They're the most irrational part of us because they're so primal and we don't know why we feel what we feel. The emotion comes first, and then we have to make up some story about why we feel that way. And we're not usually right, and then the stories that we make up make our lives harder on us. So one of the useful things that you can do is say, okay, am I feeling open or closed? Do I want to move towards something, or do I want to draw away from something? And those are two technologies that are inside of all of our cells. When our cells like their environment, they open 
and they're receptive to all these nutrients coming in and all this good stuff. And when our cells don't like their environment, they, they close down and they keep stuff out, which means the good stuff stays out. And they keep stuff in, which means the toxins stay in. Mm -hmm. So by us just noticing, oh, do I wanna move toward that peaceful demonstration? Or is every fiber in my being sensing that something's about to go really haywire, tear gas maybe, or rioting, and I wanna get away from it. And I love just being able to listen inside of ourselves. What's my, you know, toward or away response? Mm -hmm. So that's a good indicator. Another thing is, am I feeling jittery or calm? Am I feeling pleasant or unpleasant? Mm -hmm. So you notice that those aren't, those aren't emotional qualifiers. Like this is even underneath the layer of emotion. Those are like states of awareness. Yes. Pleasant and unpleasant are definitely a more awareness state. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so by noticing, wow, I'm feeling jittery and it's not an unpleasant experience. Maybe I'm just excited. Uh -huh. Or if I'm feeling calm, but unpleasant, you know, maybe I'm just not interested. Maybe this isn't the right place for me. There's a yeah. lot of ways that we can just sort of settle down by noticing jittery, calm, pleasant, unpleasant, toward or away. It's like pleasant, unpleasant, toward or away. It's like this, almost like this axis kind of thing that yeah. centers us in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Which, mm -hmm. you know, if you've got, if you've been too open and you've got maybe some toxic energy inside the cell, like you mentioned, maybe the, um, it can, I sense that it takes just like a lot of authentic listening to be able to um, disentangle the toxic energy from the energy that's that's authentic self. Yes, you 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 said it beautifully, Joshua. Because we we all the time are thinking other people's thoughts, and mm. the reason why we do that is that you know when we're born, our brains really don't have a lot of rules and regulations and structure and understanding of our world. I mean, you've got a young son, you've, you've watched him from the time he was born to where he is now and you're seeing how he starts engaging and adopting understandings. And what happens inside our brain is that our brains start watching how other people manage themselves and us and other people and our brains start copying that. They adopt other people's thoughts as our own. And, you know, we can go for years and decades without realizing that, oh, that's my dad's thought. I don't want that thought anymore. That's not what I really think. But a part of me has been operating with that. Yeah. And right now, you know, we're having a lot of our assumptions challenged in all these different ways. I mean, you just mentioned the word race or the word coronavirus 
And it's a crapshoot what you're going to get back from people. And where and and in what and from what decade, what you're going to get comes from. Yes. Because maybe what they're going to get back came from the 1970s. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's a really good segue into um, emotional flexibility and how and like maybe tools for like how do you. Um, stabilize yourself in emotional flexibility like it's one thing to be flexible but then if you're too flexible you're out the window <laughs> right like so how do you stay centered and flexible at the same time so it's an abstract question i'm sorry if i sprung that on you no actually it's an extremely good question i just want to um correct something that i that I don't look at emotional flexibility in the same way that you do. Okay. So when I think of emotional flexibility, it means that I have the ability to feel a wide range of a particular emotion. Let's, let's just pick anger because that's such an easy one to look at. Yeah. If I have emotional flexibility, then I can experience little minor irritation going up through frustration, through anger, through full-on rage, right? That's, that's a huge range of in the anger family. And when I can access all of those, then I have the flexibility to respond in any given situation with an appropriate amount of anger, right? If I can only do irritation and I can never get to justified anger, hell no, you're not going to cross that boundary again, then I'm not powerful in places where I need to be powerful. Anger is actually our most creative emotional state, which is kind of crazy. But we come up with all sorts of really cool solutions when we're mad about something. And that's why I'm excited mm -hmm. about the anger that's in the world right now, because that means a lot of creativity is at play and good solutions you can account so one part of flexibility is to be able to, to experience these wide range inside of one like emotion family. The other way we can be flexible is that we can experience all of the emotions. I have some clients that come in and they'll say, I can't feel fear. Nothing scares me. And I'm like, mm -hmm wow, that's a problem because there are some things that you should be afraid of. You know, if you have a clear and present danger to you or, or your family or your surroundings and you need to take action, fear spurs that action. It's a good thing. Or, fear, go ahead. Uh, just fear is um, self-preservation motivator. Yes. And it seems to me, I guess in places where the states where I've been kind of unafraid, it was more based on a, um, I guess, nihilism and like, well, it doesn't matter and it's all going to end crappy anyway. So might as well just welcome the fear because the fear is going to, because who cares if it, it just goes into a circle of, it goes into a circle that pours itself down the drain. Um, yeah, go on, please. So when, when I work with people who 
feel like either they're controlled by their emotions, you know, like what you're talking about before when you said emotional, you can be too flexible and you can just like fly off the handle. Or lose yourself altogether. Or lose yourself or lose yeah. yourself. So the first thing that I talk to people about is number one, emotions are the most powerful persuaders inside of us of you know you have three ways to get yourself or somebody else to act you can use logic which is the highest functioning you can use morals which is a little more tribal a little a little deeper in the neurology or you can use emotion and emotion wins every time does that correlate to human brain mammalian brain reptilian brain yep Yep, it really does. It really does. And so what happens when we get very emotional is that our brain actually shuts down the blood supply to your prefrontal cortex in your conscious mind. Mm -hmm. So you can't think rationally. It's not that you don't want to. You There's can't. There's no blood flow to support it. Mm -hmm. So you're, basically your brain's been a little hijacked. So the first thing that you want to do when, when you can't think rationally anymore, excuse me, is settle the whole nervous system down. One of the quickest ways to do it is to go for a walk or do deep breathing. Mm. They're just the natural ways to do it. And it can take up to 20 minutes for the emotions, for the chemicals to be metabolized inside of you. Interesting. Yeah. So just giving yourself some time, some emotion. So emotions are created by hormones inside of our system. So our brain starts creating hormones that then make us feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. And those, those hormones get used up, get metabolized by our system, some within a few seconds, some it can take 20 minutes. So mm -hmm. giving yourself time. The second thing that I work with people on, and these are all their own self-help type of tools, Mm -hmm. is to feel the feeling, stop the story. Ooh, right? there's a disentanglement that's profound. Feel the mm -hmm. feeling, stop the story. And that seems to me to uh, help myself, help the self get outside of the emotion and see a bigger perspective that allows me to stay present in the emotion and not... Um, yeah, and what, what you're doing is you're breaking the loop because the loop that happens is you, you get triggered by something because we all get triggered by things, totally normal. But the only way to stay triggered is to keep thinking the same thoughts over and over again. Right. And, and I had the, I developed this part of the technology with my clients when I had had a really triggering experience with my husband before we were married. And I spent the whole weekend feeling these hugely powerful feelings that were all mine, right? He didn't do anything wrong. It was my trigger. The button was already installed in me and he just happened to find it. Wasn't looking for it, but yeah. man, was it a big button. And all weekend long, I had to just keep stopping the story, stopping the story, stopping the story. And eventually I ran out of steam mm -hmm. and I was so impressed that 
I got to process all of this emotion that had been bottled up and waiting to come out because it was unexpressed emotion from when I was a little kid. Yeah. It had to come out. But in order to preserve our relationship, I had to stop my story about why he was such a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's such a good technology for people. Feel the feelings, stop the story, because we have to get the feelings out. We have to feel all these unexpressed emotions that have just been stored up in our system over the years. Like feel the feeling, stop the story as you're talking, my whole body's going and like, and you're telling your story about that emotional stuff that you got stuck in. Um, they, um, Freud talks about ego, super ego and the third component. And I feel like what your stuff talks about helps to disentangle a lot of these things. And where I also want to go with this is that um, not just psychotherapy and counseling, but helping the brain to unravel its own stuff, kind of getting really into those disentanglements to more that um, is not classic psychotherapy because like, I feel like psychotherapy is really common and people, a lot of people do it and it doesn't have that that great of a success rate. Um, and I feel like what you do helps the brain heal itself rather than like have a client sit in a chair and maybe tell the truth, maybe tell not tell the truth to the practitioner and on and on and on and on with like layers of expectation and unfulfilled um, needs, unmet needs really. So can we, here you go. <laughs> yeah, so let's just dive right in. Um, yeah. The first thing that I want to say is I'm so grateful for therapists and counselors. Yeah, for sure. Because they have the training and the capacity to deal with mental illness in ways that I don't and I can't. So that's mm -hmm. the first thing I want to say is that thank God for therapists. Mm -hmm. And the work that I do helps a lot of things that people go to see therapists for, but their, their underlying condition, you know, who they are inside themselves is already healthy enough to work with me and not have to be in therapy. So there's kind of a distinction, I, you know, I work with Interesting. Like, yeah, that's really important. consider the walking well. So we need to just kind of make that delineation first. Okay. Yeah. I like how you said walking well too, that alliteration is lovely mm -hmm. and it really points out to a, what I perceive as a huge percentage of people in America and around the globe who have trauma, but also are functional. Yes. And so we, there, I think it's called the Peter principle where people rise to their highest level of incompetence. So <laughs> like you got a bunch of people who've like been promoted and promoted and promoted and then they just can't get promoted anymore. So they're only doing the job they're doing adequately enough to not get fired. And so it's like, yeah. we're dealing with this emotional trauma as well as we can without losing it. So, um, 
Go on. Yeah, I want, thank you for, for bringing this part of the conversation up because it's a really important thing and it's not well known in most um, coaching or therapeutic arenas. And this is really at the heart of the work that I've been developing with my business partner. And the foundation of it is neuro-linguistic programming, mm -hmm. but it's very different from that. And, and neuro-linguistic and, programming is like a really broad, like some people are, too, there's lots of pro, NLP practitioners and some are, you know, I don't know what to do with that. Some have integrity and, like, and some don't, right? Yeah, that's you a know? tricky. Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting thing, but this is, this is the place where I started. I appreciated the technology of NLP as a client, mm -hmm. saw some significant shifts in my life, and then got really curious about it and started studying it and, and taking trainings but i was also at the same time studying spirituality and the thing that i really and i was reading all these neuroscience books right so i had these three arenas playing and the thing that really stood out for me the most was that most of what happens inside of us in our thoughts and our emotions and our actions is happening in the subconscious or unconscious parts of our brains which just simply means we don't know what's going on down in there it's like we can drive a car without having to know how the engine works that's kind of how we are we have a lot of unknown technology inside of us and getting access to that is really a fascinating puzzle to solve and that's yeah. the puzzle that i wanted to play with how do we get the unknown parts to change and transform? Right. And I really applied myself to that and started experimenting with some courageous research subjects. And we started finding extremely reliable ways to get the brain to understand where it's not working optimally. So basically what we do is we allow the brain to get to know itself and it's as simple as left brain and right brain does the left brain know what the right brain's all about typically it doesn't does a right brain know what the left brain does can you give me an example yes so our left brain when we ask someone to just become aware of and and tune into and be the left brain like if you could just be that part of you the left brain is really about time and space and, and structure and putting together all the little things that have to happen to make what you think become a reality in your life. Sequential, logical, mm -hmm. actionable. Yes. That kind of stuff? Okay. Exactly. Nailed Linear. it. Linear. Linear. Got Nailed it. it. But the right brain is all about the nonlinear or the quantum. It's all about looking at the field of all possibilities and then selecting one of those possibilities and, and working with the left brain to make that one possibility come into fruition. Mm -hmm. And if the left and right brain don't know how to work with each other, then you could be a frustrated person who has all these ideas but can't make anything happen.
uh, I don't know anything about what that's like. <laughs> and I find, especially with people who've had traumatic brain injuries, uh-huh. or if they've had um, certain diseases such as Lyme disease or things that really impact the, the biochemistry inside the brain or the physiology of how the brain works with itself, then there can be big gaps in how the brain gets supported by itself and how it collaborates with itself. And so my work focuses on how do we get the brain to collaborate with itself? How do you get the heart to collaborate with itself? How do you get the immune system to collaborate? And how do we get our mind and our body and our spirit to become integrated and allies and make your life better? Because here's the secret. Here's the secret that mm-hmm. took eons to figure out. And it's the most exquisite work. And I always forget her name. I think it's Lisa Barrett Feldman. Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's a she's a brilliant scientist and did tremendous work in emotions and wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. And what what she and her colleagues discovered over you know two decades of research is that our brain predicts what's going to happen next it's not responding to what's going to happen or what is happening and that's a really big point our brains are always predicting what's going to happen because we don't have enough brain power to constantly just react all the time i mean this is why your son has to sleep all the time he has to eat and sleep because he's building his predictions. So yeah. He doesn't have predictions yet. It takes a lot of brain power to do that. So our brain starts predicting what's going to happen and then seeing if it predicted right. And it steers us towards situations that actually give us better matches to our predictions. So if we predict that the world is a bad place. Our brain is going to keep putting us inside of situations that are bad. that belief. Because they match with what goes on on the inside. And so I have clients come in and they can have these really, really horrible, challenging things going on in their lives. But I don't have to solve that external problem, like I don't have to solve their marriage problems, their children problems, their job problems. I don't do that kind of coaching. Mm -hmm. But what I do is I go inside and I look at how is their mind, body, and spirit relating with each other? How is their left brain and right brain relating with each other? What's their ability to, how does their limbic brain create emotions? Does it just flood them with emotion or does it have some refinement in being able to just create small amounts of emotion up to large amounts? And when we do that, when all we do is change how the different parts in the brain work with each other, it starts creating new predictions in the outer world that match this new allyship and emotional flexibility and integrity isn't that cool 
Yeah, I mean, oh. yeah, I'm just like, I like if you're if you're if you're listening, I'm just like silently going like, uh huh. <laughs> it's the most astonishing thing that has come out of this research, is that when we just go in and let the left brain and right brain get a better understanding of each other, then someone's life just makes so much more sense. You know, I have one client who had strokes and brainstem injuries in their early 20s. And, and how many years ago was that? How many years have they been dealing with this? Uh, uh, probably about 20. So they've been dealing with this for 20 years. And just from my own experience, let me just assign some assumptions that you can unravel that or if you would confirm or deny it. But it seems to me that 20 years is more than enough time to go these are the decisions that I've made since then. These are the interactions that I've received from the world since then. This is who I am with, this is who the, this is the new normal, which is a term that like makes me throw up inside, but new normal. Oh, this just must be who I am for the rest of my life. Feedback loop confirmed. Yes. Yes. I know, right? I know. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking when we think that we can't ever change because we just haven't been taught the technology to help the brain or the body do something different. You know, I had another client who had severe um, heart palpitations and it was really impacting her ability to function, but there were no underlying medical conditions that the doctors could help her with other than tell her you just have to stop being so stressed and she's like i'm trying mm -hmm. and which sounds like it's more stressful right but right it was just so hard and so you know it's like well i've never really worked with the heart that much you know it's just yeah. not been an area of, of of client problems that i've dealt with and but we what we had her just concentrate on each of the different chambers of her heart. There's four chambers. And we discovered that they knew there was a problem inside of her, but they didn't know how to fix it. So we let them work it out. We let them get to know each other and have some conversations with each other. And her heart discomfort improved by 90%. Heart discomfort improved by 90%. That's so dramatic. Yeah. It it was huge. It was just one session. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, yes, we have certain conditions that we really need Western medicine or or naturopathic medicine for, but there are the these other things that we can do to support those modalities or address the conditions when those other modalities haven't been able to find a solution. So the work that I do, I work closely with different doctors because we support the work that they're doing and they support the work that I do. And it's a really beautiful collaborative mm -hmm. kind of relationship because we really aren't just a physical being or an emotional being or a mental being. We're all three. Mm -hmm. And when we can work at all three levels, our lives get so much better. We're all three, we're all three things 
organized through two hemispheres of the brain. And so there's multiple levels in different directions happening at the same time. Yeah. And it only, it seems like it makes the likelihood of entanglements and identity ego attachments like profoundly more likely. Um, yeah, like take a second to take all the things that you just, take everything in that you just said. Um, one of, so we did a couple sessions together a couple of years ago. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I loved most about what you, the technology that you um, are creating, that you are implementing, both words for mm -hmm. sure, uh, but implementing is the way I know it, um, is that, or that I have personal experience with it. And one of the things that I thought that was like most profound was that you're not like helping me um, you're not, it wasn't like a situation where it wasn't, it was like the opposite of a coaching situation. Like you weren't telling, like trying to convince me of new things, okay. which is what I typically got from therapy. Mm -hmm. You're not like, those are really, those are really, that's a really, like, I'm not saying it right, but that's a really significant thing. Like you're not, it's not coaching. Right. It's not right. telling. It's not teaching. It's it's like planting seeds that support the unraveling of faulty beliefs and whatever you called it at the beginning where like the sick stuff gets in your head, the sick stuff gets inside the cell, the toxic things get inside the cell. And it just like it seemed to me like it helped the healthy parts of the cell, like look around and go, Oh, you're not, you're not supposed to be here. Get out of here. Toxic mimic. <laughs> and then, and then I was able to like, um, over the last couple of years, I've been a lot more able to identify toxic mimic things trying to get in in the first place because the toxic limits parts trying to get in didn't have allies on the inside. That's been like, so, oh my God. Like, and really well like done three there. <laughs> sessions or five sessions, like five years ago. It's like, what? And it's yeah. still working, which is like, yeah. is, is that uncommon or do most of your clients um, experience? That is so not uncommon. It's not no. uncommon. No, that's, that's take the result. That's the result. Yeah. And, and it's, you're, you're touching on something that is at the very heart of the technology and why it's so powerful. And I want to take a couple of minutes just to talk about it because Please. we can, we can do this in our lives um, ourselves. So there's something called the reward network inside of our brains. Is that the reticular activator? No. Okay. Um, the reward network gets activated by, um, it's, it's the dopamine serotonin kind of thing. You know, how do you, how do you get the feel good chemicals in your body? Right. And we all know the, the base ones, which is, you know, all the things that we get addicted to playing video games, food, alcohol, drugs, sex, shopping, you know, 
I mean, addiction, all these addiction, things. Addiction. Yeah, activate the reward network. Mm -hmm. And so we feel good when it gets activated, so we want to do more of those things. Well, here's the really interesting thing, is that they found that there's an even more powerful way to activate the reward network, which means you get a higher bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. Fairness, curiosity, cooperation, and approval. Mm. Fairness, cooperation, something, something, and approval. Curiosity and approval. Curiosity. Four of them. And so, and they really give big dopamine hits. And what happens when, when, okay, for example, if I'm going to a coaching session, I'm already in all my stuff, right? I'm going to see a coach. They have the answers. They're going to have my money. I'm feeling stupid because I can't figure out my own things. I need them. There's an adversarial relationship there already because they have what I need. Right. And so all my defenses are up and I don't want to show them how, you know, messed up I am inside. And I don't want to show them my bad and ugly parts because God knows, you know, we don't want people to see our dirty laundry. And what happens is we actually shut down the subconscious from engaging in the coaching session hmm. or the therapy session. Mm -hmm. And so what I do with my clients, and, and this is the hardest thing that I, that for me to teach my facilitators when I do trainings, because it just goes against what we're taught as coaches. And that is that you actually all the parts that are coming up and creating all these problems inside, you just get on their side. And you give them lots of approval, you get really curious about them, and you cooperate with them. And what happens is the subconscious opens up, you activate the reward network. And the other thing is I don't dictate any specific outcome. I don't know what's going to happen from the result of the session, but I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I want to see what's going to happen, but I don't know what's going to happen. And because there's no dictated outcome, then the brain gets really engaged because the subconscious hates dictated outcomes, right? It'll just shut down. And if I were told you, you know, Joshua, you're going to come into this session. And at the end of the session, you're going to have this and this and this result. Uh -huh. Your your brain would have oh, just yeah, said, huh? "Oh yeah, bring it on." Uh huh. You just watch. Yeah. I'll show it. you how resistant I can be. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't. I'm not even going to tell you the truth. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so when I work with people, I love all the parts of them. You know, I'll have them step into, and when I say step into, I put a card on the floor, and they step on that card. And they let themselves just be that part of themselves. And it's a way to get the subconscious to just focus, you know, really. Mm -hmm. It's just a way to get it to focus. And I'll have them step into, you know, step into bad. Just be your bad parts. Be your ugly parts. And it's a way to really build some self-compassion around we all have parts that we think are good or bad or ugly. And if I, as a facilitator, 
love all your good, bad, and ugly parts and appreciate them and approve of them, they're going to work together and become this wonderful allyship, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, I can't come at you in a coaching session and say, well, Joshua, I have all the answers to your life. I don't. Right. But I know that if I activate your reward network and I let the parts inside of you get to know each other, your brilliant brain is going to come up with something astonishingly intelligent and magnificent and change your life in ways that I could never make happen ever. Yeah. And our brains have the capacity for doing that. And what I'm excited about is that as I've been teaching people how to do this facilitation, they get the same results that I do. So it's not anything that it's not you. It's not, it's not you. It's your process. It's not me. Right. It's not me. That's important. Mm -hmm. um, I really got curious about the idea of compartmentalization mm. and when we talk about good, bad, and ugly, for example, as those three words that you put on cards that you put on the floor and have people step into these, experience, these, these ideas and then really embrace the good, really embrace the bad, really embrace the ugly, I heard um, a distinction between like when I try to go learn something like I went to I went to coding school a couple of years ago thinking I was going to be a coder and um, I uh, am a teacher I've been a teacher for like a couple decades and have always kind of done educational type relationships with the community and um, when you're learning new information, it can be really hard to like sort it and keep like this piece of information is up here and this piece of information is over here and then not getting them entangled and crisscrossed. And so that in my mind is like conscious compartmentalization, which helps learning and understanding and synthesis and like um, integration, whereas subconscious compartmentalization um, like puts the ugly stuff in the corner and never goes and looks at it and isolates it and says, I'm never going to, I'm never going to go look at this ever again. So like conscious compartmentalization and subconscious compartmentalization. Um, Good tongue twister there. Right. For sure. So <laughs> there, maybe you can help me wrangle those ideas. So tell me more about what is um, interesting about that. For you, because I'm, I still haven't quite pulled the thread out of where you're going with it. So tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to compartmentalize this as a global, as a one-time thing that worked, as a one-time thing that worked, that I'll then apply system systemically across the whole operating system. Um, and then I'll just compartmentalize this and I'll compartmentalize this. And I learn it better when I compartmentalize math from history and compartmentalize history from gym class. Mm -hmm. And when I keep all those things separate, then I can acquire them. Like, here's a great example. Um, I lived in Israel for some time and I took a bunch of Spanish and I got pretty good at Spanish while I was learning that. And um, what I've 
heard about and learned about like teaching, like, like raising kids that are multilingual, for example, mm -hmm. what is super necessary for helping a kid discern and keep separate, keep distinctions between Spanish and English and French, for example, um, is you do like one language is at home only and one language is at school only and one okay. language is like outside of school at a friend's house only and then the and then like a nucleus a cell membrane if you will gets um created around each language so you don't start going parlez-vous english right like <laughs> and like entangling the languages and so like on a conscious level entanglements um not entanglements on a conscious level um compartmental compartmentalization is really important but it sounds like on a subconscious level compartmental compartmentalization leads to um putting the toxic mimic in the corner and letting it fester and grow so um you're you're touching on such a fascinating topic and it's one that I still don't, um, I, I, I still get really curious about. Let's just put it that way. And I love that how you is that too. That is that our subconscious does compartmentalize. And the, the benefit of that is that you have one part that does one thing and a different part that does a different thing. You know, it's, it's really interesting to me that the thyroid and the parathyroid each control the calcium ion level in our bloodstream. And one puts more calcium into the bloodstream and the other pulls it out. Like you have two different glands that control this one thing that is the most tightly controlled calcium ion in your whole system. Even that has become compartmentalized. And you think, well, wouldn't that be more efficient to have just the thyroid do it? For some reason, no. Mm -hmm. For some reason, no. And so the thing that's fascinating to me is that when we start going inside and having people, you know, start exploring all these different compartments, some of these compartments don't even know they exist. There's mm -hmm. no consciousness about the fact that they exist. They just do their job and they don't even know it. And then they start to understand, oh, I do exist. And then they start to understand, oh, this is how I matter. And what I see in people is that as, as we do this work together and the different compartments get to know who they are and they get to go visit other compartments, they start to recognize it, it's like GPS coordinates. Oh, you live over there and you do that. And I live here and I do this and we're both important. And so the compartmentalization is a necessary and beneficial thing because we don't want to have to activate our whole neurology all the time, right? That's way too calorie and energy intensive. So sure. we just activate little parts at a time. But when those parts don't know each other, then we get these, we get these challenges. Like if a trauma happens, especially, um, the different parts can choose different coping mechanisms. Like one part may be to hide and the other one may be to get aggressive. 
And so you'll see these really kind of interesting behaviors with people where they're either hiding or they're aggressive. <laughs> and you're like, are you the same person in there? Mm -hmm. Honestly, they're not because they have two very different coping mechanisms that are each like grabbing the microphone and running the show for a while. And it makes us feel crazy inside. Yeah. Like just crazy inside because we feel that switching and it can happen in a heartbeat. And so the thing that, that is probably one of the most precious things for me when I work with people is I start to see them have compassion for why they feel and do and act the way they do in their lives. Because they can see inside of themselves, it's like, oh my gosh, that was my pituitary gland that, that was feeling that way. And we let the pituitary gland heal and release whatever it had. And then they have all this self-forgiveness for why they've been the way, for why they are the way they are. How many, what, what percentage of people go, oh, that was my pituitary gland versus something that's less, I don't know. I have a hard time. It's, it's hard to imagine somebody having like an emotional thing and going, ah, pituitary gland, I see you. Like, how does that, how does that actually play out? Well, I put cards on the floor with all the different endocrine glands and I tell uh, someone, go step in and be your pituitary. Oh, and they, they do they know how to do that. They just do it. And they, they just do it. Up. Yeah. That's important too. Like they don't, you don't need to know how it works. No. You just have to trust that your inner mechanisms are going to unravel the things that they need to unravel, which leads yep. me to another question. But uh, I have so many, like, this is a really stimulating, this is a really fascinating conversation. That's actually kind of going better than I thought it, than I thought it even, that I, that I dreamed it could go. Um, at the, at the root, how do these processes work? So, if, if I create a bit of context for this, because you're, you're delving into an area that is really, really hard to describe. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, you know, use some analogies. So if, if I'm a bird and I want to teach a fish to swim, I go get other fish to teach the fish to swim because I'm a bird. I can't swim. I don't know how to swim. I don't know how to teach a fish to swim, right? It'd be ridiculous for a bird to teach a fish to swim. But a bird could say, oh, let me go find these other fish and, you know, ask the fish to come over and visit with the fish that doesn't know how to swim yet. And then they work it out, right? So in that example, our conscious mind is the bird and our subconscious is the fish. So our conscious mind can say, you know what? My life isn't working. It's just not working. I'm, I'm not regulating emotionally like I really want to. It's impacting my work. I cry in meetings. I get pissed off and I yell at people in meetings, you know, whatever it is. It's just like, I'm not functional the way that I want to be at work. Or I have all these great ideas, but I can't implement them. I just get blocked. So our conscious mind is going, there's a problem here. 
But the difficulty is that our conscious mind can't tell the subconscious how to do things better because it doesn't know how the subconscious does what it does. Mm -hmm. Great analogy. Right? It doesn't okay. know how the subconscious does what it does. Uh -huh. But if you activate the reward network, which means the brain is now happy to do something and it loves solving challenging problems when it's not given an outcome, right? So you activate the reward network, oh, see, yeah. give it a challenging problem, which is you're not working with yourself. It solves its own problem. So what I do is I introduce different parts to other parts that are part of the system. And this is where it's been, you know, the development of the work is finding out which parts get activated and create new levels of intelligence and, and beliefs when they come into contact with other parts left brain and right brain and the prefrontal cortex that's a really nice system that beautiful things happen endocrine system you've got all these different endocrine glands and some of the glands when you introduce them to each other they start changing and they start doing their job better other ones there's no response whatsoever so what i've done is just thousands of hours of research with hundreds of different people to see what's the difference that makes a difference. I love that question. And, and so I can't tell you why this works. I wish I could. I mean, I really wish I could, but as How about everything's conscious. <laughs> How about what? I'm sorry. I sorry to interrupt. I was just going like, wow. It, well, if consciousness is everywhere, then everything's conscious. And therefore, the listening and understanding parts of the, the brain that absorbs information and makes meaning out of what it interactions um, can go like, you know, central point to you, you know, you organ, you organ, you organ, and mm -hmm. they all centralize back and there's, a, it's like a, I guess it's breathing. Yeah it's meta yes yes and so again i just i get so inside of my own work that it's hard for me to describe what happens i you know it's easier for me to just demonstrate it with people and then they start to get it but mm -hmm. um i think you know in in, in your observation about everything's conscious and then that conscious creates more consciousness it's it, you know I had a I had kind of a weird argument with someone a few months ago because I was talking about integral theory and the different levels of consciousness mm -hmm. and um, not saying that lower levels of consciousness are bad Right. And that's where this person was interpreting what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there really is the, the consciousness of someone who's very tribal is not the same as the consciousness of someone who has a world centric. Everyone should do well. Belief system. They're, they're mm -hmm. different levels. And 
what I see happening with people is when we do this work, it's like we bring these higher awareness tools down into the parts that don't have those tools as their native language yet. And when we let parts be more world centric inside of, you know, our human instrument, oh, I have other parts, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. then that, that ability to be conscious of other parts creates a new level of co- cooperation and a higher functioning level automatically. You know, it's like with you, with Micah, the, the, the worst thing you could ever do is never take him out into the world to play with other kids. Mm-hmm. He learns from other children. You know, children who are a little older than him teach him, and children that are a little younger than him learn from him. Like there's this whole language that, you know, babies need to be with other babies. Mm-hmm. Teenagers need to be with other teenagers. And inside of us, when our parts get to be with each other, they learn so much about themselves and about what what they're capable of doing. And they just up-level their capabilities, you know, like that. Like they just change. Like that one client whose heart just started working good again. Mm. It was instantaneous. Yeah. So, um, like... These are emotional, psychological, mental um, points of interaction, points of like um, which interaction. So I want to what I want to I want to get to what I want to um, segue into is how do you address physical trauma and injury? Because I understand you do some of that too, like a physical component. You do a lot of that. Yeah. So like, this is counseling, this is coaching, but physical stuff? It's, um, It's really interesting how much intelligence is inside of our systems. And when we just start with that, the system is intelligent, period. And it has the ability to do things that we don't think it can. And, you know, one of the, one of the classic NLP techniques for trauma is as soon as the trauma happens, then you replay, like you go, you run the movie backward. Let's say, you know, I burn my hand. You know, I pull something out of the oven. I touch the oven element and burn my hand. And what I would do is I would replay that backward and then replay it forward with a different outcome that I reached inside the oven and I never touched the element. So what I'm doing is I'm telling my body, don't react to the thing that just happened because it's our body's reaction that causes all the physical stuff that goes on with us. Like when we get sick, when we get like a flu virus or something, it's our body's reaction to the flu virus that makes us feel so bad. Interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, when, reaction. Go ahead. 
So when I, if I burn myself and my body sends all these chemicals there to address the, the trauma, I get the blister, I get the peeling skin, I just, you know, all this stuff. But if I tell my body, no, that didn't really happen. It's okay, don't send in the, the squad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Then it doesn't blister and I never get pain or a worsening of the incident. And this happens time and time and time again when you, when you work in the moment with trauma. It's really amazing. And we can do this in all these different ways. So that's an immediate thing. You can, you can settle your system's response down in the immediate moment. But when you have old trauma, mm -hmm. like I had one client who um, was skydiving and the, she was doing a tandem jump because it was like her second jump and two parachutes didn't open. So she fell and she was on the bottom out of an airplane, you know, with her, her instructor on top of her, mm -hmm. broke a bunch of bones, you know, Oh, she hit the, really, she went. She, oh yeah, she lived. She was my client. She lived. <laughs> and so I, I mean, saw she hit her the ground with no parachute, hit the ground with no parachute. Holy smokes. Yeah. Amazing body. But she was experiencing a lot of physical residual physical conditions, you know, like 15 years. Post. Yeah, this is, a, this is a great example, if it, if it ends well. And so when we did mind, body, spirit with her, we realized that her body never landed. Energetically, her body knew that it was going to hurt, so it didn't land. And it was like staying above the ground in this kind of strange way. And so we just let the body gently land. And the impact on her life was astonishing. Like all these physical symptoms resolved, all this pain shifted because her body was no longer holding off and holding, oh my God, I can't, you know, I can't crash. Yeah. So our bodies That's hold huge. trauma in these really interesting ways and respond to traumatic situations in these really interesting ways. And when we let it when we let it have an outcome that it can live with then it gets to shift all these dynamics that go on inside uh amazing yeah um the language of suffering how does someone decode their own language of suffering Tell me more about your question. Well, I, I think it's related to um, something you said earlier, which is the living unwell. Was that, you said living unwell? Was that the phrase the you used? The walking well. <laughs> the walking well, yeah. Where they're like well enough to function, but not well enough to like or walking like you could call them walking wounded the walk yeah. perfect walking wounded so they're they're surviving and they're living in the world and they're doing their thing and they're they're according to all standards of according to all things that are considered normal 
they're doing just fine, but they're, but the felt sense is that of suffering. Mm-hmm. And what works for some per what, 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 what might work for one person might not work for another person when you say, there's your answer. Here's take two pills and call me in the morning. That's, that doesn't necessarily alleviate the suffering or help someone to identify what suffering, how suffering um, operates in their life. So uh, there's like a million different ways I can a million different approach ways this, approach this <laughs> concept. So, um, I want to approach it from the idea of conflict. Okay. And when we have internal conflict inside of us, for example, and we can use just some really easy examples, like part of me wants to sit on the couch right now binge watch TV and eat salty snacks, right? Mm-hmm. That part of me would be so happy. It's like we're in a pandemic. We're in the midst of a civil war. Things are escalating. Hunker down, store calories, conserve energy, and self-soothe with some mindless TV, right? So that and would that be the comfort zone part. Mm-hmm. And then there's another part of me that is like, wow, I'm in the midst of transforming my business because the the first phase was the development of all these processes and putting together this training program. And I'm not sure yet what the next phase is, but having this time alone is giving me a great opportunity to just have some space and start exploring. So those two parts could easily be in conflict with each other. No, don't go wasting calories. Don't go off on some adventure. Don't leave the house. Don't talk to people. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't. Mm-hmm. And compartmentalize, the compartmentalize, compartmentalize. Exactly. Yeah. And isolate, the suffering isolate. for me mm-hmm. would be if those two parts kept me from being able to act in any way that brought relief or that brought me what I wanted. I look at suffering as thinking that you can't have what you want for very long periods of time in the future, right? I can desire things and I can have pain and I can, I can have lack, but if I have the idea that, okay, that's how it is right now, doesn't have to be in my future. And let's just take these little baby steps to make changes in my life. Okay, but if I have this idea that I can't change or I can't stand not having what I want right now, then I suffer a lot. And maybe if subconscious compartmentalization and that toxic mimic keeps you afraid of looking in the other side of the honeycomb where you've kept things separate then things continue to self-isolate in the internal structure and then you get more alone inside your head yeah 
Yep. And so I've done this work long enough and I've had some, I, I have, my business partner is a values coach and she's done astonishing work in developing values-based coaching. And because of those things, I can now acknowledge the, <laughs> the comfort zone part and acknowledge the explorer part. And I can give them both what they want. I do spend time on the couch having salty snacks and watching TV, you know, because I need a certain amount of that. But then I also let myself explore and push the boundaries and go into a new creative mode. But I don't neglect the comfort zone. And that's a really important thing. So suffering that I see in my clients and how I see it leave them is when the parts inside of them each get what they want. And they allow the other parts to have what they want. It's not an either or anymore. It's a both and. Right. Because you're internally able to modulate and uh, the relationships are more sturdy. So there's ability to um, so there's ability to fluidity. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> a, it's the, it's the difference between, I had a coworker back when I was a technical program manager who always, if there was a pie, he had to have the biggest piece. And he would tell you that straight out. I get the biggest piece of pie always. And then there's my husband who's, who looks at any pie and just goes, Oh, we can make that pie bigger. We can always make bigger pie. Everybody can have as much pie as they, they need because we're just going to make bigger pies. Mm -hmm. And that's his philosophy. So you can see the difference. His is a both end. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we, we figure out what's conflicted inside and then we give them the both end option instead of the either or option. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising how willing our, our whole system is, is in doing that, given if we activate the reward network and we don't dictate the outcome, we don't tell them they have to like it, we don't tell them they have to cooperate. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the four ground rules that I tell all my clients when we're doing parts work with them, when we're looking into the different compartments and I ask one compartment to go visit another one is you don't have to like it. You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to change. And you can go back to your own compartment anytime you want. And, and they're like, oh, I'll go visit. <laughs> But if I tell them you're going to go and you're going to grow up and you're going to stop being a jerk and you're going to work with that other part because you need to work with that other part. Because I told you so. Because I told you to. Yeah. They're just like, I'm not going. Yeah, right. Make me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's in there. Um, Carrie, I feel like I could talk to you for like another hour. I feel like... Um, I mean, I want to ask you maybe like this is this is a this is this is a this is a fastball. Um, immune systems. Mm -hmm. How do you 
talk about immune systems in while there's a pandemic, but how do you also not talk about it because it's such a present social issue? Like, can we talk about support? Like, how does the immune system get, can the immune system be supported by this? Can, by disentangling thoughts in the conscious and subconscious? Yes. Um, it can. Yes. Yes, mm. this is, okay, so this is one of the most fascinating things that I learned from um, the book, How Emotions Are Made. Mm -hmm. And that is that your immune cells have receptors for all of the hormones that act on your brain. All your emotion hormones mm -hmm. also operate on your immune cells. So if you just take that in for a moment, your immune system feels all your emotions, all of your emotions. So, right? so if you're feeling, um, at cause, then your immune system might be more might be more resilient. And if you're feeling at effect and a secondary reality to um, otherwise dominant to someone else's reality, then your immune system is going to be dominated by outside forces. Yes. Well said. Well said, wow. and it and it happens all the time. And mm -hmm. when you look at the underlying cause for most diseases, mm -hmm. is stress. Mm -hmm. I heard that. Yeah. So all of those stress hormones, those stress chemicals, are also acting on your immune system. And what the immune system is really good at doing, unfortunately, is creating inflammation. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, if we go back to, you know, I burn my hand, I get a blister. Inflammation. Yeah. Inflammation. To help blood circulate and bring raw materials to the wound to heal and all that stuff. Yeah. If I'm stressed, I get inflammation in my joints and I, and I get arthritis. Interesting. Right. So there's all these ways that we have inflammation operating inside of us because our immune system thinks that there's something it has to attack. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's a very animalistic system. When you, when you look at, you know, all animals have immune systems. Right. And an animal's emotions are usually a result of the environment that it's in, right? Is it under attack? Or is it not under attack? When does the immune system have to come in and do its job? But for us, because our conscious mind has the ability to anticipate in the future all the things that have happened in our past, it has the ability to, to obsess about danger and worry about things and make up stories that aren't true, our immune system is listening to all those thoughts and then responding to it and creating inflammation in our system. Right. That's why mindfulness and yoga and breathing techniques are all so incredibly powerful. Yeah. I mean, you can basically eliminate a lot of 
um, arthritis in, with yoga. When I do wow. yoga regularly, I don't have any arthritis. Wow. It just settles something down in the system and creates flow. So, wow. yeah, especially wow. during this time, you know, yoga, walking, any mindful yeah. activities, breathing, they're so important. Whew. Yeah, because everybody's flooded <sighs> with cortisol right now. Everyone yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. These all sound like these all sound like essential life skills. They is, are essential like, life skills. One more thing, essential life skills. Yeah. Um, are did we kind of talk about essential life skills throughout this whole conversation, or is there more that you can add for essential life skills that would be valuable for guests that are um, still with us? I think the one last thing I would like to say about essential life skills is that when we have the ability to to experience ourselves as um more functional and mechanical then we we let ourselves off the hook much quicker like if i don't get enough sleep especially when i'm doing a lot of neurological work with clients or teaching if I don't get enough sleep, then I'm depleted, and then I'm emotional, and I'm cranky, and I cry easily, and I get really mad at people on the freeway, and, you know, like, all these base emotions come up. Mm -hmm. So I know, oh, I probably haven't gotten enough sleep, and I probably haven't been eating well. Let me take care of that. Mm -hmm. and, and so one of the basic life skills is recognizing that when you have all these emotional things come up and you're just not acting in what you would call your right mind, you're being hijacked <laughs> because your brain stem and your mammalian brain are now operating more and taking over because you've depleted yourself in some way. Right. And so the best advice is know what fills your tanks and fill your tanks. Right. That's keep yourself filled rather than keep your, rather like, like, it sounds like, sorry to jump in, but like, it seems like, um, you can spend 20 bucks a week on gas for your car, either staying full. And then once you get low to like, say three quarters through, say two thirds full, then you put 20 bucks in yeah. versus if you run it all the way out and you're always having to put 20 bucks in to keep yourself above empty. And yep. the prefrontal cortex and the reasoning part of the brain and all the parts of the brain that we want to be running the show from day to day only operate up here rather than down here. Yes. And, and the reason is they're aftermarket, right? They're aftermarket? not part, they are not part of the original evolutionary brain. Oh, I see. Yeah. They came on like... 600,000 years ago or something? I love that you called it aftermarket parts. Like it's a, like it's a, like it's a exhaust manifold. that's like, like way too loud. Totally aftermarket. And your prefrontal cortex uses the most amount of calories of your whole brain. Mm -hmm. it's, it's because it's the thinker. It's creating yeah. new thoughts, new ideas, new structures. So it's burning the glucose at a very high rate in your brain only eats glucose 
only eats glucose and you have about five minutes worth of glucose in your bloodstream, right? Without your body having to pull it from other sources, pull it from your muscles and start, you know, changing your, your metabolism and creating more. So when you're under a lot of stress, then your, your brain just goes, oh, we can't waste any energy right now. We're just going to pull the blood supply back from the prefrontal cortex. It literally starts starving the prefrontal cortex so it can't think clearly. And we know this, you know, when we're cramming for a test or something. Man, are we starving. Yeah. You know, when and I work with I clients mean, in the office, I have nuts and chocolate all the time. Yeah. I'm reminded of the nuts and chocolate, like in those sessions a couple of years ago. Yep. And I was like, oh yeah, that's perfectly timed for, I'm not hungry, but like, I totally need that right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking about like small segue, but I'm thinking about all those, like the videos that I've seen in the last 72 hours of protests and the two sides of the space in between being like the people that are upset and the cops that are there to maintain order or whatever they're at, whatever they're there to do um and that's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of um there's a lot of cognitive and emotional demands on everybody on both sides and if they're not um i could i can see how this quickly stems to overreaction yeah and a non-thinking non-thinking choices, yep. non-thinking responses. Yep. One thing that's really fascinating about our brains is that like if I were to push you, then your brain is going to overestimate the amount of force that I used by 10%. Hmm. So if I used one unit of force, your brain would say, oh, that was 1.1 units of force. Okay. And, and your brain will also underestimate by 10% how much force you're going to respond with back. So you're going to go, oh, let me deescalate. I'll just apply, you know, 0.9% or, you know, 0.9 force. And I'm going to interpret it as more and you're going to interpret it as less. So that's how these escalations just ramp up in a heartbeat mm -hmm. because the protesters and the cops are all underestimating simultaneously underestimating their own force and overestimating the other's force yeah so what that starts here quickly goes step, like like three steps forward two steps back three steps forward yep. and escalates exactly and yeah. exactly so and the amount of energy it takes to really de-escalate is huge because we have to first be able to supply you know this part of the brain with enough blood to come up with that de-escalation tactic and then actually do it to the extent that it's noticeable by the other side yeah wow yeah I, <laughs> i'm imagining a, a person like walking through the riots and like here's some food here's some food here's some food like let's get your brains all calm down just a little bit so that you guys that's can... exactly what's happening right now in the um the capitol hill autonomous zone yeah they have yeah. a tent set up with free food 
Wow. So people have been regularly coming in with food and water for the people who are protesting. Smartest thing they could do. Yeah. Smartest thing they could do. Yeah. Feed them. They will behave better when they're fed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So this is, you know, this is where I keep coming back to. You never get demerits for acting out of your animal instinct because that's normal and natural and it gets the veto on everything, every time. But you always get credit, you get points for every time you move back into your, you know, your higher conscious self, your human spirit self. You always get points for every time you do that, but you don't get demerits for acting out of your instinct because that's the, that's the most natural, normal thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't well, just tell someone, be more self-compassionate, right? right, so we build, right. We, we right, build you can't tell them. Yeah. You can't tell them things. Yeah. You build the muscle by having the different parts inside of them become compassionate with each other. And then that creates more self-compassion for the person. So we, wow. it's an inside job. Wow. And then as above, as within, so without. Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. Pretty cool, isn't it? That's really cool. Carrie, thank you so much for this amazing conversation and from, and for, coordinating to help me get this done this is like our fourth conversation that we finally it looks like it's actually still recording and so i'm like ah, yay ah. it's like working and like i'm like really thrilled and um so grateful this one was the one that was meant to be 